This is Political Odds. My guest is Michael Kirby, former Justice of the High Court of Australia. After a distinguished career on the bench, Justice Kirby retired, sort of, into service in international law. He was appointed by the United Nations as Special Representative for Human Rights in Cambodia, and more recently, as head of its Commission of Inquiry into Human Rights in North Korea. He has been a tireless advocate for LGBT people around the world, and next year, he and his partner Johan will celebrate their 50th anniversary together by getting married. Justice Michael Kirby, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. I think you're the hardest working person I know. What is it that keeps you going? And is it the same thing that got you going when you were young? I think that hard work is a natural exercise of the human brain. I think the brain likes to be worked hard. I think when you stop working your brain hard, it comes as a shock if the brain has been working hard for many years. I don't think giving a shock to the brain (laughs) at the age of 79 is a good career move. Um, It has something to do with your DNA. Um, If you still have your marbles, then the marbles expect to be rolled. My father was still alive at 96. He uh, had a very sharp intellect. He took no nonsense from his children, including me. Um, He would still have lived on, except that he didn't look after his physical health. uh, And he did not want to die. He wanted to cling on to consciousness. Consciousness is such an amazing phenomenon that the grey matter of our physical brain somehow contains our thoughts and capacity to think, to reason and to moralise is an astonishing thing. But I have this gift and I plan to make most of it. Uh, Lying on the beach uh, with a gin and tonic is my (laughs) definition of oblivion. Um, (laughs) You've talked across the length of your career so movingly about love. I wondered how it is that you find love, you recognize love, and you sustain it especially in a situation where the, the odds are stacked against you and when you're working from a compromised position. I didn't really, in my inner heart, believe I was working from a compromised position. This was because, rather presumptuously, uh, in my intelligent little schoolboy brain, I had worked out that the rest of the organised world was quite wrong mm. in relation <laughs> to um, sexual orientation and therefore that I shouldn't really be worried about the fact that 
uh, churches, uh, laws, institutions had uh, declared war on minority sexualities, um, I just went on being myself and was not deeply troubled in my soul. Mm. Maybe if I had been a bit more religious, I might have been deeply troubled if I had thought that there was an instruction from uh, an almighty God that put me out of uh, connection with God's love, but I never really believed that. <clears throat> so uh, my approach to the matter was first to deny it and wish it away, then it was to recognise it and address it, and then having found my partner, Johan, to um, establish a long-term loving relationship. Uh, and um, once I met Johan, we really have not been separated from virtually that moment. And uh, we have now decided that we will get married mm. on exactly the 50th anniversary of our meeting which is the 11th of February 1969, plus 50. Mm. So uh, you have to be lucky with love. You have to be lucky with your brain. You have to be lucky with your parents, your grandparents, and with your DNA trail. Mm. Uh, so many things you have to be lucky with. But in the love department, I certainly was lucky. I wasn't quite so lucky in the beauty department, but <laughs> Johan was very lucky in the beauty department. And we met on a Tuesday. He moved in with his bags on a Thursday, on the Thursday. <laughs> it took him two days to pack. <laughs> <laughs> well, it took him two days to decide to stick with me rather than to take other offers that were available. Yeah. The first two questions I raised seem to me related in that at least I find that people who are highly ambitious, professionally hardworking, often find it hard to have luck enter their lives in that way. Is there some advice you can give on how you can balance that? I'm not saying that everything was or is perfect in any human relationship. I do think you have to make compromises for very long-term relationships and I uh, believe that is especially so in LGBT relationships because um, certainly until very recently you didn't have the backup of the institutional and social structures and of children normally that reinforced um, relationships when sexual attraction began to begins to wane. So we had a deal in our relationship. Whenever there was a dispute, one has always to give in, always to be ready to give in. And that one was me. Mm. Johan said that was because I was usually in the wrong. Mm. But uh, I've told him... Did you get to write off a dissent? On, on, the, on the balance of probabilities, that would not be a very sound statistical analysis. 
However, uh, right or wrong, that is how we have survived and uh, I'm rather proud of the 50 years. Ever didactic, we chose the 50th anniversary, hmm. making a point that for 50 years, almost, my country and its laws excluded the uh, relation, the recognition of our relationship, even though, in all truth, it was a relationship which was good for society as well as for us, good for mental health, good for physical health, good for social stability and well-being, good on every level of human existence. I wonder if you could introduce the first piece of artwork that was important to you. In my case, the artwork will all be music. Um, music is the most powerful art form so far as I am concerned. Uh, I keep going back to the music of J.S. Bach. Um, I have strayed into uh, periods of um, Mahler mm. and um, uh, Schubert uh, and uh, the Romantics, uh, Berlioz, but I keep going back to J.S. Bach. Um, J.S. Bach is relevant to LGBT rights for me because it is very Protestant music. I was very conscious growing up that I was a Protestant Christian. That was uh, in a group of Christians who did not necessarily accept authority of institutions such as the Pope uh, and who prided themselves in a capacity to think through issues by the application of human reason. Um, admittedly, application to biblical text, but always willing to put a new spin on the text. So uh, if I wish to relax my brain and yet have important thoughts, I will um, listen on my iPod to one of the passions of J.S. Bach, either the St. Matthew Passion or the St. John Passion, or listen to some of his cantatas, um, Ich habe genug, um, or uh, Ich will den Kreuzstab gerne tragen. Um, I learned German at school and I love to hear these old cantatas sung in German with the strong medieval confident German of J.S. Bach and the religion and certainty in our human improvement that he expresses in his music. So, and I'm not alone in this, they say at any moment there are millions of people up there in planes listening to J.S. Bach. Wow. It's very closely hardwired to our human brains. My next set of questions is about your time in the law. 
In a lecture to the University of Western Sydney, you begin by acknowledging the historical complicity of the law and legal and the legal system in perpetuating certain injustices. And I wonder how that legacy, especially in the common law, shapes your approach or understanding of your responsibility as a judge. I gave that acknowledgement in the context of making a point that the acknowledgement of country, which has crept into Australian public life uh, so that before any public event there is a respectful tribute to the Australian Aboriginal people could be extended and broadened into a concern about the other areas where the law had been unjust, even in my own lifetime. The law relating to women and women's rights, uh, which when I started out were distinctly subordinate to the rights of husbands and of patriarchal figures in their families. Uh, and the rights of non-Caucasian Australians, which were protected by the white Australia policy uh, and which still find some reflection in the attitude we exhibit towards refugee applicants in Australia uh, and, uh, inevitably, the position of LGBT people. Um, so I wanted to e extrapolate from a purely indigenous focus into a, a broader focus, but also to make the point that the law has actually been a vehicle for securing a lot of the changes that have been necessary. Um, the Mabo decision of the High Court uh, on uh, native, recognising native title rights, uh, the uh, statutory reforms to incorporate uh, the Convention Against All Forms of Discrimination Against Women in Australia and the reforms on gay rights, including the belated reform for uh, same-sex marriage. So lawyers have a special role to play in, in this and in getting rid of the criminal law against gays. That's another uh, reform that has been achieved. In the context of so much talk nowadays about artificial intelligence and the law and where the law is going, um, it's important to recognise that if we just analyse the algorithms uh, in order to find the solution to the case of Marbo against Queensland number two, mm. we would never have come up with the leap uh, that was evident in the Marbo law you've got to have a human element that adjusts law when the repetition of old law is doing injustice. I think that last point speaks to one difficulty of being a judge, which is there must be a difference between advocacy or campaigning for reform versus being an arbiter in a case. And I wonder, as a judge, how do you think about when you take a leap of the sort that you described? When Sir Anthony Mason was asked that question, he simply waved his hand nonchalantly <laughs> at all the law books on the shelf behind him and said, don't you think they might be full of many instances where uh, little leaps, they're not generally as big as the Marbo mm. leap. Uh, when do you take the leap? 
Well, the answer depends and emerges out of the circumstances of the case. The um, history of how the law got to where it was, whether it is in written law or is part of the common law, mm. judge-made law, whether it is, uh, um, been, has been criticised, especially in lower courts or in academic writing or in civil society. And uh, then it is a question of seeing how the mosaic fits together and how it may need to be changed. Uh, as well as that, normally judges have the stimulus of advocacy and persuasion and analogies and uh, comparative justice and reasoning that uh, are thrown up to them to help them on their journey. So. Um, uh, it is true that some judges are not very inclined ever to change. Um, some judges are more inclined to change. Um, Chief Justice Spiegelman said that the interesting biography of me would probably come after my passing <laughs> when there will be an analysis uh, of a psychological kind as to the extent to which my experience with the injustice of the laws which were targeted on me had made me very sensitive to injustice against minorities based on irrational grounds. I would plead guilty to that sensitivity, but the extent to which it made me less content with the self-satisfaction that is pervasive in many parts of the law and more alert to the need for change. Uh, I'll have to leave to that post-mortem uh, biography. Mm. Justice Kirby, let's talk about the second piece of art or music. The uh, Boyer lectures were given to me in uh, the 1980s and I had to try to explain the role of the judiciary, which had never been the subject of uh, a national series of lectures. Uh, I naturally wanted to do them differently from others. And so being broadcast lectures, I tried to get voices of great judges of the contemporary age and earlier in order to illustrate and have those judges illustrate the points I was making by reference to their statements. Um, it was, I think, a very successful piece of theatre. Uh, but I chose uh, a, a piece of music to introduce the lectures, which was Judges of the Secret Court by Berlioz. I, uh, I was the ringmaster to all the voices of the judges. <laughs> I put forward my somewhat surprising views for a judge, speaking about what judges actually do and how they actually do it, and using uh, a very uh, lovely and evocative uh, piece of music, uh, which I still think uh, Mark out my Boyer lectures from others who forget that it's a, a broadcast and yeah, therefore well. it's not just another lecture where you're standing up and talking to people. You've got a, 
make it more interesting. Let's talk about North Korea. Um, in 2013, uh, you were chosen by the United Nations to lead the Commission of Inquiry into human rights in that country. What made you want to take up the assignment and what struck you most when you started engaging? I had been chosen back in 1993 by Secretary-General of the United Nations, Boutros Boutros Ghali, to be his special representative for human rights in Cambodia. Mm. So when I was asked to chair the Commission of Inquiry, I had background, I had ceased being a Justice of the High Court, I could therefore take such a position. Uh, it is a great honour to be asked by the United Nations to undertake such an inquiry. There was high unanimity in the uh, Human Rights Council that an inquiry was uh, necessary, indeed overdue. Our report was written. Uh, it is well written. It is highly readable. Uh, it is readable because it gives power to the voices who are quoted within it, and it's a highly toxic and powerful message to humanity which it promised it would not ignore. Um, the present situation seems to be that all attention is being focused on peace and security and the removal of the nuclear threat mm. on the Korean Peninsula and to the region and the world. I understand that, but ultimately if there is to be peace and security on the Korean Peninsula, there will have to be the cards of human rights on the table. Mm. Could you talk a little bit more about that? What do you see the relationship between long-term security and prosperity on the peninsula and human rights as being? Prosperity is connected with human rights. Um, even in the darkest moment after the end of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, the advance in economic um, entitlements of the people of Cambodia has definitely reduced the desperate human rights situation that existed. So when you improve the economic condition of people, you definitely do improve many aspects of human rights. But there are also uh, other economic, social and cultural rights, including the right to food and to health, which are not being safeguarded in North Korea, and there are most definitely civil and political rights which are not being faced in North Korea. My faith was in the fact that uh, President Moon Jae-in was repeatedly described as a human rights lawyer. When I examine more closely his career, it was essentially as a labour lawyer, and his career was human rights but focused very much on a union perspective of human rights in what was a rapidly advancing economy and is therefore rather closer to what we in Australia would call an industrial relations lawyer rather than a human rights lawyer. Um, he was not very inclusive in statements made during uh, the election that resulted in his presidency uh, concerning LGBT rights. 
he later withdrew some of those statements, uh, saying that he didn't like gay people, and he later uh, backtracked on that. But I'm not sure that his deep feelings and values are those of someone who would conventionally be described as a human rights lawyer. Mm. Um, his focus is on peace and security and stability. And that is a very worthy focus. But there are other foci and it will be important at a certain point that he be reminded that if there is an oppressive and violent state adjoining uh, his, then undertakings given will not be very reliable, that the bottom line will be the survival of the Kim family in North Korea and their power and the power of those around them. And that is dangerous for the long-term uh, respect for human rights in North Korea, but it's also dangerous for peace and security of the whole peninsula and the region. Mm. In your dealings with the North Korean regime during your time working on the report, and you famously had a confrontation with them in the UN, one of the chambers, did you see any reason to believe that this is a regime that might play ball on human rights? Our dealings with North Korea were minimal. Mm. Uh, we were, from the start, entirely professional and respectful. We sent notice of our establishment, invitations to engage, uh, and uh, efforts to engage repeatedly to the mission of the North Koreans in Geneva, but we had no cooperation at all. We asked for access to their country. The resolution establishing us had recommended that, uh, as the country concerned, they make access available, but they ignored such uh, requests. At the very end, we sent a copy of the report in draft to them with an invitation to uh, make any comments or correct any factual errors, uh, we got no reply. In my letter of transmittal of that draft, I pointed out that under international law, uh, uh, where uh, a person or authority has the power to change uh, human rights deprivations and fails to do so, that person may, under the command principle, be themselves liable for the wrongs that are done by underlings. I drew that specifically to notice. We were criticised later by North Korea and by others for doing that as being something that had not been done before and something that was impertinent for a subordinate body of the United Nations to do in relation to somebody who was a head of state. Well, he is not a head of state, but even if he were, there would still be a due process requirement to give him the opportunity to respond, correct, and to give us access. Um, after the report came out, uh, I repeatedly asked 
for the opportunity to go to North Korea and answer questions uh, and to see the places that were said to be detention camps which they denied existed. Uh, they refused to do that. Then on one day I attended the United Nations and I had to deliver a report and I saw in the position uh, the representative of the DPRK. Uh, this was before the uh, session assembled. I then had to consider whether I would go over mm. and introduce myself. Um, having been raised in the law and as a judge and not as a diplomat, I didn't really know what the <laughs> protocol governing mm. that situation. But I went back to uh, the deepest values of courtesy and respect. And so I went over and I offered my hand and it was taken. Wow. And I think the ambassador was anxious and looking around as to whether this was a setup. It was a just a photographic opportunity. Well, there were many others in the yeah. hall, but uh, I wasn't seeking a setup. I was wow. just being courteous and, as I saw it, professional. Um, they are the representatives of their country. They are saying what um, diplomats have to say. And I had no uh, beef with the ambassador or indeed with um, anybody else in North Korea. My only job, essentially, was to find facts, to state them and to reach conclusions, all of which we did in our commission of inquiry. Justice Kirby, let's talk about the last piece of artwork. One of uh, the most famous scenes in opera is a scene in Fidelio. This is the only opera that Beethoven wrote. It was written um, in the reaction of Europe to the failed hopes of Napoleon, child of the French Revolution, who had become an oppressive tyrant uh, and was locking up freedom strugglers. Uh, at a certain point in the opera, out of the well of the stage come uh, into the light of the hall uh, the uh, prisoners and it is a most moving moment uh, as Beethoven can do so powerfully mm. and I like to think of North Korea in terms of Fidelio. One day it is certain the people of North Korea will emerge from under the stage, they will come out into central stage, they will be under the blare of the full lights and the glorious music of Beethoven's Fidelio will mark the advent of the prisoners out of the shadows into the light of universal human rights. My guest this week was Justice Michael Kirby. Cover art is by Alistair Debling, sound by Jay Park, 
and music by Rico Alice. You can subscribe to Political Arts on SoundCloud or on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.